Hey everybody, I'm Tim Muma. Thanks for checking out localjobnetwork.com radio and the podcast Moving Up the Ladder. Here we bring you experienced professionals with insight into improving your business or career. Now at times in our careers, we may cover up who we are or what makes us different than the next person. And perhaps there's a greater cost to that than we truly understand. That's part of what our guest tends to think. Sean Hunter is the executive producer and vice president for leadership solutions at Skillsoft. He's also the author of Outthink, How Innovative Leaders Drive Exceptional Outcomes. How are you doing today, Sean? Good. Thanks for having me. No, I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, an intriguing topic, uh, something I think a lot of people do think about, uh, at least personally, maybe not in the grand scheme of things. But let's just jump to the first idea here of hiding yourself. What does that mean to you? How do you describe that particular term? Well, what I'm getting to in here is a, is a, a study that I was reading from Deloitte, the Deloitte Leadership Center for Inclusion. And basically what their study uncovered is that to the greater extent that organizations, companies, and corporate cultures create an expectation that we have to, quote, cover ourselves. So mm. Let me define this first. What they mean in their study is that in many cases, we cover ourselves from a point of ethnicity, our appearance, our age, our demographic, our socioeconomic background, you know, how much money we make, things like that. We conceal these kinds of things. And when we do, there's a cost, and the cost is principally to the organization because what happens is we start to check out. We start to disengage Mm -hmm. from what we're doing. We start to commit and care less about what we're doing predominantly because we feel like we cannot be our authentic, genuine selves. And when we feel like we cannot be our authentic selves, we are vested less in our commitment to the organization and our work. Sure. So from your experience and I'm sure other items you've looked into and researched and read, is there a particular reason that organizations sort of encourage this culture of hiding ourselves and and keeping things sort of under wrap, if you will? Yeah, I think it does it in many cases, not intentionally. Okay. It, what happens, of course, is that organizations start to hire like-minded people. Mm. You know, we, we hire for homogeneity. And when you get a homogenous kind of population, it takes away from the richness and diversity needed to fuel and accelerate innovation, which is really the, the seminal piece that we need within all of our organizations to stay ahead in our market is that innovation. But you start to eradicate it when you get that homogeneous kind of environment. And that homogeneity requires on some dimension that people cover, you know, cover for their appearance. They Mm -hmm. start to dress alike. They start to talk alike. They start to use the same jargon, the same insider language. And there's a wonderful expression that my friend Steve Shapiro likes to use. He says, expertise is the enemy of innovation. And what he means by that is if you get, you know, 10 experts in a room, let's say they're all IT engineers. Well, if you add an 11th IT engineer, you're not going to get any closer to solving the problem. Hmm. But if you add maybe an architect, a musician, even a toy maker, you know, somebody from a <laughs> divergent field, somebody kind of outside uh, with an outside perspective and point of view, you're more likely to accelerate your innovation because you'll draw new insight. I think it's a terrific perspective. Uh, I think that analogy fits really well and, and gives people that visual that we are often pining for. In terms of what people themselves feel, um, you know, as you said, uh, sort of hiding ourselves even could come down to how we dress and how we feel it's expected for us to dress. 
How much of this all relates to the belief amongst employees and workers that, well, I can't get to point B if I don't follow all of these same sort of conformities that the organization is, is looking for? Is that all in our heads? Is that something that is present? I mean, how do you account for that? No, there is, there is a, a very high realism in that kind of, of conformity to accelerate efficiencies, accelerate communication, to, in fact, on some dimensions, build camaraderie in culture. I mean, mm-hmm. think of a team, you know, on a team, we all wear the same uniform. We know the same <laughs> chants. When we go, when we go to camp, we learn all the same songs and dress alike, and, you know, and, and this is a very, very strong culture building kind of a- exercise. But at the same time, you cannot do this and build a strong accelerating culture simultaneously eradicating the personality. You have to bring the personality along for the ride. And there was this wonderful message I heard from Rick Warren years ago. He's the pastor of Saddleback Church. But he had a message not necessarily related to the church, but it was about integrity. He's speaking about integrity. And he says, you know, a lot of us, we partition our lives. We have our sporting life and our married life and our coaching life and our golfing, guys' weekend life, or whatever it is, our work life, you know, and we kind of sliver ourselves and we allow different aspects of who we are to show up in these different environments exclusively, mm. exclusively. And he, and he points out that, you know, really the etymology of integrity is from the Latin word integer, integer meaning one, wholeness. Mm. And so his point, of course, is that integrity is about giving permission to both ourselves and to the people around us to bring their whole selves to work. And when you start to bring your whole self to work, even those corners of of your life that you normally partition, like, you know, your coaching life, and you start to borrow that brilliance that you have in other aspects of your life and reinforce it among your colleagues, it accelerates a sense of belonging sense of commitment to the mission in the organization and your work. So when it comes to the side of, say, the employer, is there a concern with fairness or perceived uh, bias if somebody is standing out or they have a certain situation that's different? Maybe it is, you know, family obligation. Maybe it's because of their physical health. Maybe you get into the idea of legalities with, uh, with physical health. Where is that line drawn? How do you sort of apply what you're talking about in this this oneness and the employer kind of saying, well, we got to try to keep things equal for everyone because that's how it needs to work or that's what we're afraid of in terms of the legal side. Where, where's that balance when you talk about this subject? I just read a, a book on this subject and, and did an interview and there is in fact a double standard that, that exists in some circumstances. And the example that this author was giving was, you know, it, it's okay if, if men, if dads have to leave work early to go coach Little League, for example, mm-hmm. that's somehow like heroic and giving back to the community and all oh, what a great dad, you know, <laughs> but in, 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 in the way she tells the story, in many cases in, in the workplace place culture, let's say if mom needs to leave early to pick up a child from school or go take them to a doctor's appointment or somebody's sick, that's somehow frowned upon. And they're more likely to cover that behavior, to sort of, to sort of hide that, like, oh, well, there, there's so-and-so who has this obligation to their family. Now, it's my hope, and it's the author's hope, that this kind of prejudice is diminishing in the workplace. But nonetheless, 
it does still exist in some circles. So, mm-hmm. so there does exist on some dimension that level of double standard. So in your view, if you had uh, you know, all things considered in that scenario, are both people treated as sort of allowed to go do that or both would be discouraged from doing what they're doing? Now you're asking my, my opinion. Yeah. And I don't, <laughs> I don't believe in punching a clock. Okay. In the extent that I believe in process-driven outcomes. And so let me define that. First, process, not heroes. Process is scalable, replicable. You can tweak it. You can refine it. You can get interchangeable talent at different places along that process-driven environment. And you can scale it up. Now, if you, get a, if you build a heroic culture on the, the counter side of that, you say, oh, we need Jennifer. Oh, we need Joey. Joey's the, <laughs> he's the rainmaker. Got to get Joey. He's the fixer. You know, he's going to solve the problem here. And when you get that kind of heroic, you build that kind of heroic culture, you're celebrating predominantly the person and the outcome. You're associating the person and the outcome. And it's not a highly scalable kind of environment. You're trying to create superheroes. Hmm. But if you celebrate processes that drive the outcome, it's both scalable and and replicable. So when I say I don't believe in punching a clock, I mean it takes a great diversity within a day to arrive at exceptional kinds of outcomes. As we all know, you know, you, I, everyone listening, we get some of our best insights when we go for a run or take a shower or go for a bike ride or have an in-depth conversation or go out to lunch with someone we haven't seen professionally in six months. Instead of sitting and working on the pivot table for another hour. I appreciate your opinion on the subject. And I was getting to that, so I'm glad you saw that right away. Going back to the idea of hiding ourselves or covering, uh, again, however people want to phrase that, we did briefly mention there the idea of family obligations, that being a consideration. You touched on earlier, might be socioeconomic, ethnicity, physical health. When it comes to these items, policy-wise, these certain things might still be in play if, if maybe an organization does say you need to be here until a certain time or you need to work X amount of hours. How do you factor in the individual when it comes to that? If maybe someone is a caretaker for an individual at home or, um, or maybe their disability doesn't allow them to work certain hours, how far do you stretch those limits? And I know I understand you say you're not one that's into necessarily punching a clock, but if, if there are those sort of confinements to an organization, how do you start to manipulate that a little bit, or, or can you not? Is it too widespread at that point? Yeah, well, the preface to my commentary, of course, is this is wholly fair. It matters. It depends. I mean, if you're right. an air traffic controller, you work at the control station of a nuclear reactor, you, you need to show up and monitor <laughs> the systems without question. Or if you do an hourly, hourly kind, of, kind of work, you need to be on location. You need to show up. But Many of us work in outcome-driven environments where we're, say, in complex business-to-business sales cycles or process management or operations, HR, even legal kinds of activities. And we understand the obligations that we have, and we should be given a certain level of discretionary decision-making and autonomy on how we spend our time, what teams we work on, what tools that we use to get the job done. And my point in in emphasizing this is to the greater extent that people feel they have control and that organizations and bosses give people control over the environment, the time, the technique, the task, et cetera, the much more engaged they'll be in the higher performance Mm -hmm. 
they will be on the job. And, and of course, to, to discerning listeners out there, I'm kind of riffing on, on Dan Pink's work, in which, in fact, he has something that he likes to call an autonomy audit. You know, and there's a little exercise in which you should do a little self-reflection and say, to what extent do I have autonomous choice on these dimensions? And it will impact both your productivity, your level of engagement, and creativity in the outcome. Since we're a little bit on that subject then, in terms of talking to maybe the listeners out there who are in sort of that general area of employment, maybe they're thinking to themselves, I don't feel I can be authentic. Uh, maybe they, they think their job might be at risk or they don't have that opportunity to advance because of whether it be their personality or, or however that might work or not work within that organization. What would you suggest to them? Is that a conversation they can bring up to their manager? Is that something that they maybe need to look elsewhere? I mean, in general, what would be your thought process if you were in that situation? You know, it's interesting. A, a lot of, there were a lot of comments on, on my blog in that particular article suggesting to the extent that when people feel trapped, as you're suggesting here, the trapped by a sense that they can't be authentic and genuine in, them, in themselves and their identity and their expression of self, their recommendation was quit, you know, leave, life's too short, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I have a different kind of recommendation. Okay. There's a couple of, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think bailing is the, is the, fr- it's the knee-jerk reaction for sure, you know, forget it, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say your, your very first thing you should do is find yourself, and, and what I mean by that is express it. And I, I like to use this, this expression, uh, positive deviance. So, if you have a novel idea, take a chance, leap off a cliff, express something unique and genuine that you feel like socially puts yourself out there, yet provides immense value. Mm-hmm. So go to a conference and then come back and, and give a little presentation or a little lunch and learn session about what you learned and impart that information. You can reach out to another division or department and, and partner with people that you previously have not worked with. Basically, what I'm suggesting is get out of your comfort zone and start to show the organization who you are. And if, if after you do that, they still kind of, <laughs> kind of you feel like you're rejected or, or, or squashed or, or marginalized, okay, then start thinking about disappearing. But first, you've got to have the courage to show up. That's my first recommendation. I appreciate the tangible uh, strategy there. And uh, to your point, like you said, yes, the knee-jerk reaction is often to just move on and, and look for something else. But uh, again, I appreciate your perspective on that being a little bit different, at least at least off the front end. We are getting up against the clock. I do want to give you the opportunity here to give our listeners a, a nice final takeaway about this conversation, whether it be specifically about, um, quote unquote, hiding ourselves, or if there's anywhere else you'd want to offer up some uh, some tip or some piece of advice for our listeners who might be in a situation as we just talked about. Yeah, so here's my final parting piece of advice. Just create value before you create risk. So if, I, if I'm saying be audacious, show courage, show your true genuine self at work and take a chance, I do not mean call up your boss or, or go have a beer with your boss and pitch an idea over a napkin because that water cooler talk in their mind is creating risk. They'll say, oh, what about the resources? What about the cost? What about the time? Why don't you get back to what you're doing? Why don't you get back? But when you start by showing value and you show up to at your next meeting or with your boss, your boss's boss or whatever it is that you say instead of, don't say I have an idea, say, look 
what we created. Look at this. We prototyped it. We mapped it out. We built the business case. We showed the dot. We showed the trajectory. So once you build the evidence and the value, then they'll see the opportunity and the possibility instead of seeing the risk. That sounds like a perfect spot for us to close out this edition of Moving Up the Ladder. We have been speaking with Sean Hunter, executive producer and vice president for Leadership Solutions at Skillsoft, also the author of Outthink, How Innovative Leaders Drive Exceptional Outcomes. Sean, thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate your perspective and insight today. Very grateful. Thanks so much. And as always, if you're interested in getting in touch with us, just send an email to ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com if you want to let us know what you'd like to hear about for the next show. You can also reach us on Twitter at the LJN. You can also chime in by using hashtag LJN radio as well. Wishing you success in all your endeavors. I'm Tim Muma. Take care, everybody. 